You're listening to a special edition of The Central Cast, a place to connect with and listen in on conversations with prominent and respected thinkers, artists, and culture shapers. It's here we dig beneath the surface as we explore philosophy, arts, comedy, theology, and philanthropy within the framework of progressive faith. If you'd like to contribute to the production and expansion of this podcast, or if you'd like more information about the community which creates it, visit www.centralavenuechurch.org. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another special edition of the Central Cast. Our guest today is Dr. John D. Caputo. For the few few of you who don't know him, he is a retired professor of religion and philosophy from Villanova and Syracuse. He is considered to be a major figure in what's called postmodern Christianity, or what some might call postmortem Christianity. <laughs> See what I did there? Uh, he's the author of numerous books and the founder of a theological movement called Weak Theology, of which I consider myself a fan. He's spoken at Central actually a couple of times, and some of you might might remember him. Welcome back, Jack. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Aaron. It's uh, always a pleasure. Now, the title of our talk today is, What is Deconstruction? And my guess is that many of you listening are familiar with that term and use it to describe, well, maybe your loss of faith uh, or the way your faith has evolved or devolved over time. But the word originates more or less with the work of Jacques Derrida. Is Is that correct, Jack? Uh, it certainly is, yeah. I mean, it, it actually, you'll find it in the Oxford English Dictionary. <clears throat> really? So the English word deconstruction actually appears in the Oxford English Dictionary, and it refers to the um, parsing of a sentence. Okay. If, if you go back in um, years ago, they used to, uh, you would actually... Uh, uh, analyze the parts of speech in the sentence by l- laying them out on a line with slashes in between noun, verb, adjective, adverb, and, um, you, you know, literally, analytically uh, 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 deconstruct the, the sentence, which flows as a unity, but can be broken into its uh, constitutive parts. So, that, so it actually originally meant uh, a uh, grammatical analysis of the, the structure of a sentence. And uh, I don't know if the French word, I mean, he was first speaking in French, he was saying déconstruction. Mm-hmm. I, I, my guess is that's probably also true in French, but uh, in any case, the modern use of the word is uh, certainly his, his doing. For those of us who are interested in religion, one very good way to understand what deconstruction is, is to see it uh, as uh, a way to rethink religion, because w- w- what it means is um, to, to to make a very a very long story short. Um, the, the the root of the word is the word construction itself, and in in Derrida's accounting, um, everything that we have to do in the culture around us is a construction. It's a, it's a 
construction of language, it's a construction of social practices. Uh, it's a complex um, of beliefs and practices and accumulated traditions and institutions, all of which have been constituted, constructed in time and history. Mm. And insofar as they have been constructed, they are deconstructible. You know, what comes to be can pass away. And there um, I was interested in uh, expounding, first of all, the, the, the mutability of the structures in which we live. Um, that they uh, didn't drop from the sky. They were historically produced. They're, they're historically contingent. They are constructions, so, uh, social, cultural, um, historical constructions. And he wanted to say this not out of destruct, not for destructive reasons, but for uh, reconstructive reasons. That is, he wanted to show that no given uh, complex, no no given assembly uh, or order is unreformable, um, and that. Uh, reformability gives it whatever it is, it's a, whether it's a book or an institution or a, a work of art, it gives it a future. That is, uh, uh, it, it gives it, it opens it to a future of reinventability. And so the things that are most precious to us are the things that are sort of endlessly reinventable. Um, the things that aren't very reinventable just pass away. They're, they're transient. But things of, of real importance have a kind of depth to them, which makes them, um, uh, which opens them to a future of, of endless possibilities. So the, the word deconstruction is a process of sort of creative destruction. That is not not flat out destruction, but but a creative jarring or, or rupturing of settled uh, structures, which. Um, is risky business because it could end up being destructive, mm -hmm. uh, but it takes a, it's a risk well worth taking because it is an attempt to uh, open them to the future. It's an attempt to give them uh, to let them speak to us anew in a new way, and that of course is an is a is a very good way to think about an institution, uh, a tradition, uh, a book. And uh, it's a very it's a, it's very useful to, to religious thinking. It's a very useful way to think about a, um, a, a religious tradition. And then when you look back upon his Jewish origins, you say, ah, I can see some Jewish echoes here. First of all, the critique of idols. You don't want. You don't want uh, anything we say or do, any of our beliefs or practices, to become idolatrous. We want them to be transparent with the divine. We don't want them to trap us in, in their own glow. Um, and then there's also an image or an echo of the messianic hope for the future, a messianic expectation. So you could see that although he, as he put it in that book, rightly passes for an atheist, these Jewish um, motifs uh, meant something to him, and mm -hmm. he reinvented them in a very interesting way, in a word that got 
the reputation of being something very destructive. It got into the popular vocabulary, and you will from time to time see it in the newspapers or on, uh, online on some uh, online report, where the word deconstruction means uh, to break something down. Right. right. Now, it's no more breaking down than the deconstruction of a sentence would be if you analyzed its grammar. And as soon as you when you when you analyze its parts, you you realize the way in which it can be uh, rearranged and rethought and rearticulated. So, but in the earliest part of his work, the first half of his life, from the the 60s through the uh, 80s, mostly middle 80s, he was working with literature, and so he was taken to be a, a literary theorist. But as I said, in the, in the middle 80s, he began to um, uh, turn his attention to ethic more, in a more sustained way to ethics, politics, and religion. Okay. So he became a deep, uh, important resource for a lot of us working in postmodern approaches to religion. Well, let me speak to that, because I, I think the term has been appropriated by progressive Christians and ex-evangelicals alike. And and I think it's because of your work and perhaps the work of others in postmodern Christianity like Pete Rollins uh, and, and those in radical theology like Pete Rollins, maybe um, Barry Taylor or others just in general kind of progressive Christianity, Christianity like Rob Bell and Brian McLaren. Um, they, they've taken the term deconstruction and used it to describe um, this this experience of faith being dismantled. <laughs> uh, how has the term changed in its usage since that appropriation out of kind of Derridian kind of continental philosophy? Uh, how, is, how has that term changed in its usage since it's been appropriated? Uh, in other words, how has the term changed from its academic usage to its popular usage? What do well, you think of that? Yeah, I think in its popular usage, it's been, it's been degraded. It's dis- disintegrated into the one side the, the destructive side. Okay. And it's popularly used to me. It's popularly used interchangeably with destruction. Yes. Breaking it, breaking something down. Um, but to deconstruct something is to open it to its future. It's to reinvent it. And so, it, in its proper Derridian sense, it means something um, affirmative. It's a way to affirm something. To be deconstruction is to be shaken out of something that's blocking you and frees you. It, it breaks through the crust of a, of a petrified uh, belief or tradition or institution or belief, practice and uh, awakens you to its inner life so that um, bre- bre- deconstructing something is like breaking the ice. And okay. Cracking the, the shell or... Uh, let me ask you a question about that, because I think that's an important point. You're saying that deconstruction is inherently constructive. Is that correct? Yes. So, in other words, applying it specifically to this post-evangelical context that I live in as as the pastor of a uh, of an existent Christian community of mostly made up of recovering fundamentalists and post-evangelicals, right. um, it sounds like what you're saying is that something can be resurrected uh, after the death of God, after this, um, if deconstruction can be seen at all as somewhat somewhat synonymous with this death of God, 
um, that that something can be resurrected after that um, that isn't pure atheism or the so-called new atheism of the Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris ilk, which really, as you've as I've heard you point out before, new atheism isn't new at all. It's more it's it's uh, 19th century uh, reductionism and uh, you know scientism, I guess. In, in my experience, as the pastor of a community of again ex-evangelicals and and recovering fundamentalists. I th- I think there can be something resurrected, uh, that there can be a resurrection of a kind of mysticism in one's Christianity, in, in my experience. Um, the, the death of God for most people coming out of evangelicalism today, it seems to me, means the death of one's certainty in, in one's faith. In other words, the, the radical embrace of doubt and unknowing. But more specifically, I think deconstruction for a lot of post-evangelicals today in my experience, means the death simply of this sexist, racist, homophobic, anti-science God of evangelicalism, or you know, this this kind of certainty-seeking faith as well. That, for many people that I know, is is the extent of their deconstruction, which is to say that there is a kind of mysticism in place now, where uh, where God is still affirmed, or perhaps uh, Anselm's hyper-being God is affirmed, or Tillich's ground of being God is is affirmed. My question to you is, is this level of deconstruction deconstructive enough, or, or do we need to go further? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, it's it, all what you're talking about is is an important ingredient, but it's always the, the, the moment of the death of God is, is just that. It's a moment in a larger process, which is ultimately affirmation. I mean, if deconstruction or anything, whatever you're doing, if it's not ultimately affirmative, uh, then it's a form of some form of despair. Um, deconstruction is, uh, and and I think postmodern theory generally is deeply affirmative. It's, a, it's affirmative of a future that is uh, difficult to see. That you know the real future, the, the the future with teeth in it, is the unforeseeable future. So it's it's risky business when you when you when you disrupt something that uh, stable that has uh, up to now been of some use uh, but whose whose time has come mm-hmm. it's risky business because you may make things worse um, but if you don't do that then then you things really will get worse because then the past will become a monster and so the instruction is always affirming a future a possibility Derrida likes to call it the possibility of the impossible. At one point he even said, uh, well, he rightly passes for an atheist. If he had to say what he meant by God, he would describe God as the possibility of the impossible. That is, this unimaginable future, what people like uh, Tillich, going back to St. Paul, called the new being. And it's interesting when, when Tillich speaks of the new being, he's... Not, he doesn't go into great detail about that. You know, he doesn't mm-hmm. uh, specify it. He it's, leaves it open-ended. It's very open-ended. It's a, it's a, because it's the structure of hope and expectation. Uh, so all of this is uh, in this, the, the the service of uh, affirming um, an unforeseeable future. A certain atheism would always be necessary. For any ver- any interpretation of God, anything that we say about God needs to be exposed to the fire of an atheism, because an atheism is presupposing some some that you've got some idea of God. Mm-hmm. And once you've got an idea of God, it's uh, dangerous, you know, to it, it it 
it, it's risky. It, uh, it, it, uh, it, 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 we're, we're tempted to confuse it with God himself, but it's, but it's simply an image of God. Not, I, remember, God. Um, I, I remember Derrida saying, I think in an interview that you conducted, it's posted up on YouTube, uh, where I think he says that uh, uh, one's faith must be taken to the to to the utter um, end of atheism. In other words, one one must expose one's faith to to the ultimate uh, atheistic uh, denial of God in order to actually be a true believer. <laughs> that that otherwise belief and and theism is a kind of naivete unless one is fully embracing of this kind of radical negation of God in, in yeah. one's faith. Do you see it like that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he he said one maybe maybe in the same place. He said I, I don't trust anything that hasn't passed through the asceticism of atheism. <laughs> yeah, we we need to be atheistic about our beliefs in order to keep the notion of God open, because the notion of God for him is precisely that the openness. He doesn't yeah. think it refers to any entity. He thinks. In Intellect's language, he thinks it's some kind of symbol of uh, human expectation, historical uh, hope. It's a figure of hope. So um, it's immensely useful for, um, and, and indeed necessary for religion right now, because religion is in a position of making itself uh, unbelievable. You know, religious mm -hmm. beliefs have made themselves unbelievable, and if they're not reinventable, if they if we don't uh, find some way to uh, uh, rearticulate them, uh, they'll disappear. And and sometimes, you know, it depends what day you ask me. I think that may not be a bad thing. You know, it, it may yeah. be religion has made itself such a religion made such a mess of itself that there are times when I think maybe we'd be better off without it because. There are other ways to do this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I, I think a lot of us are with you on that, Jack. Um, I've heard it said that deconstruction isn't, some, isn't so much something that we do, but something that happens to us. <laughs> it's an event, like getting struck by lightning. Um, I, I think it was uh, Catherine Sarah Moody that articulated it like that once. Deconstruction is is an event, like getting struck by lightning. You can't you can't force it on yourself. You can't force it on somebody else. It has to happen to us. Um, do you like that description of it? Yeah, it's an important part of it because it's not it's not the, the case that you or I are deconstructing something so much as that thing is, as Derrida likes to say, auto deconstructive. I like to say it it itself is uh, fragile and in, in process, in, in movement. And we, we might be the ones that try to prevent that, you know, that try to freeze, freeze frame, uh, freeze frame a, a dogma from the past, a formulation from the past. Um, in a, in a, so in a sense that uh, someone, you and I, de deconstructive uh, thinking is observing something that's going on. Mm -hmm. That's that's happening in in the things themselves, so it's not some kind of subjective intervention on reality so much as it is something going on in the things themselves and and letting them happen, and then the the event that is to say the the break in the in breaking, the language of revelation right the in breaking of the event uh, is something that happens to us and it's un, it's unforeseen. Um, it's apocalyptic. It's, uh, yes, that's right. There is an unveiling, an opening, of, uh, a disclosing of something that's uh, it's not our doing. It's not our doing. 
Um, but it could be our doing to try to close ourselves, uh, to close that sort of thing down, to close ourselves off from it and to um, worship our idols instead. But if we're, uh, if we're attentive to the things themselves, the things themselves are in process. And history is a movement and it's got an energy and um, the, the uh, deconstructive analysis is, is trying to read the signs and try to um, to to open things to to to, to catch the, the the glint of the of the future in in things um, which which presupposes the, uh, a past that has something to say to us it's, it's mm-hmm. not it's not, it's not simply the destruction of the past. It's a kind of retrieval of the past because the sorts of things that, uh, for example, Derrida writes about are ancient. You know, because the question of the gift, hospitality, forgiveness, these are ancient biblical themes that he's rehearsing in uh, hospi- hospitality today above all uh, in the argument going on about the wall. Um these are ancient biblical motifs that uh, are being restored, that are restored in, in, in this kind of thinking. So, uh, yes, it's 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 uh, deeply affirmative and is deeply um, relevant for for people for anyone working within a tradition and and especially for someone working in a religious tradition where we're subject to. Yeah, because when when I when I articulate deconstruction in my community as 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 a pastor, I think I'm often trying to get people to understand it as as yes, an event, but also an event that we can participate in. Um, and and the for me, and I might be a little uh, narrow minded about this, but the, the goal of the deconstruction we practice in spiritual community. With, especially in the context of a Christian or spiritual community, is to expose the the underlying depth dimension of what's going on in our traditions, in our scriptures, in our even in our confessions, in our in our in our, in our so-called faith or belief. Uh, you know, to expose the underlying depth dimension that says something. Uh, I think you would use maybe the term unconditional or tiliquid uh, to describe what's going on in the human condition as, as this kind of ineffable quality that you might even be able to attribute to a kind of spiritual, you know, quality um, that, that brings this sense of awe and wonder up in us. For me, deconstruction is about unveiling or revealing that awe and wonder, enhancing it, giving it center stage so that we can, I think, find something passionate about these traditions still. Does that, does that make sense? That, that's exactly what it is. It's also interesting that uh, this word, when you said, to call it unconditional the way Tillich does, what's interesting is it's also, that's also a focal word for Derrida. The two, really? of, them, the two of them have this... Um, turn to this notion of something unconditional. Mm. Uh, now, in Tillich, it's got a uh, sort of uh, metaphysical, he doesn't like the word metaphysical, but it's got an ontological depth, you know, it's because he's coming from German idealism. In uh, Derrida, it doesn't have this uh, ontological sense, but as he likes to put it, uh, Hauntological sense. <laughs> Hauntological. It haunts. So it haunts. Yeah. So he's he's got a sort of more more messianic uh, imagination. So he thinks of it as the the lure of the future, the specter. 
it is on the one hand the specter of uh, the dead, you know, the, the the victims of injustice, but it's also the the lure of a future, a, 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 a specter that haunts us, that um, uh, is uh, uh, driving us, calling us, uh, disturbing us, uh, awake, trying trying to awaken us to uh, a, 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 a future we can't quite see. You know? Right. So, so Derrida doesn't have the, the metaphysics of German idealism behind him when he uses the word unconditional. He's got this notion of an unconditional call or an unconditional appeal. Tillich has a, a more ontological idea, so for him it's an unconditional depth that we're never going to exhaust. For Derrida, it's more like an unconditional uh, dream that we're never going to quite realize. But it, but it never lets us rest. So you have this Augustinian motif of the restless heart, you know, the core in quietum. Our hearts are restless, and they will not rest until they rest in thee. And but both of them, both Tillich and, and, and Derrida, have that mm. um, motif, and they both use it. They both formulate it in terms of the distinction between the concrete conditions that currently exist. Derrida will call them constructions, and our unconditional hope or expectation or in the unconditional depths that are inexhaustible. Very, mm. um, very interesting convergence of uh, the, the, the word unconditional. So do you see Christianity as inherently deconstructive? Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the tradition of, uh, you know, like the circumcision questions of the early church, the the mystics, the work of the mystics in the medieval church, like Meister Eckhart, uh, maybe St. Francis and others, the, the work of Luther and the uh, and the reformers, you know, as I think Tillich talked about the Protestant principle, uh, liberation theology, and now as of late, radical theology. Do you, the stream, it seems, of deconstruction exists in Christianity. Do you see Christianity as inherently deconstructive, auto-deconstructive, perhaps? Uh, I do, uh, for for various reasons. Tillich has an interesting take on that. He says the central symbol, because we're always talking about God and symbols, and he says the central symbol of the cross is um, formulates this. It formulates the Protestant principle, or it formulates the principle of auto-deconstruction, namely that uh, Christ, he, he's sort of provincial about Christianity. He thinks that of all the cultural uh, embodiments of uh, the unconditional Christianity is the highest. Mm. And he says it's the highest because it's it's symbol, it's symbol. Every religious tradition is symbolic. Everything we say about God is symbolic. But the highest symbol for him is the symbol of the cross because it crucifies anything that pretends to absoluteness. Wow. It's, which is interesting, you know, it's... Yeah. Derrida says uh, something similar about democracy. He says he thinks that the, the notion of what he calls the democracy to come is the, the one political system which is self-critical, uh, self-reforming, self-correcting. Uh, um, the very notion of democracy is that it, it's all on the table. Um, so Christianity, so so for those reasons, uh, Tillich thinks Christianity actually is distinctively um, deconstructive in the sense that we're using it. What um, the, the reason I uh, 
uh, apart from Tillich would, would say it is that because I, I think that the notion of uh, the kingdom of God is um, the, the focal point of the, of the New Testament. And I think of that as and um, um, the, the, the kingdom of God does not occur in calendar, calendar time. It does not occur in a particular place. It's, it's a structure of hope and expectation. The, the year of the Jubilee is not going to take place in calendar time. That's, that's a year in messianic time, in the time of hope. And I think the kingdom belongs to that time. And consequently, any given chronological moment is deconstructible in the light of what we mean by the kingdom. What, what the world would look like if God ruled, not uh, human uh, passions. Uh, what the world would look like if the image of God that that you find in the in the New Testament as a God of forgiveness and and um, mercy and compassion, if that ruled rather than the, the passions of men. Um, and so, so the very notion of the kingdom of God deconstructs anything that pretends to be the kingdom of God. It 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 it's a white light against which any existing. Uh, uh, situation uh, can be held and found wanting. Uh, very similar to the sort of thing that Tillich is saying about the Protestant principle, but 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 you would say on for, for, on, sure, on purely deconstructive grounds. Because when you deconstruct something, you're deconstructing it in the light of something, mm-hmm. of something which uh, Derrida will also use the word undeconstructible when he talks about the unconditional. He'll sometimes instead of saying unconditional, he'll call it the undeconstructible. That is what we're praying for, dreaming of, hoping for. Mm. Um, and he even thought that when he was talking about literature. It wasn't just when he started began when he started to talk about more religious themes. When he was working with literature, he said at one point um, that he dreams of writing the absolutely untranslatable sentence. <laughs> it will be so idiomatically French uh-huh. that no one will be able to translate it. They will just give up. It. It's it will be so. It'll be perfectly untranslatable. Now, anything that's perfectly untranslatable would not be linguistic. It wouldn't be language. Mm-hmm. If you can't translate it, that means it's not language anymore. And so it, he's you're, you're dreaming of something. The conditions of which. The conditions which make it possible, namely that it would be some, some something you would have written, make it impossible, that is, for it to be untranslatable. It's like like another example he used in those days was the, the absolutely proper name. So you would have a name that no one else had. It would be unrecognizable as a name. Well, if it would be unrecognizable as a name, it wouldn't be a name, because once you call somebody anything, even if you just make up a word that has never been used in any language for any person ever, the moment you say that's the name, his, his or her name, it becomes repeatable. Mm-hmm. And it's it's no longer absolutely unique. And so so he had this ideal of, that's what he meant by the impossible. Something that we're dreaming of that would be so, that the conditions under which it's possible would actually make it impossible. But it would be our dream, our hope, our expectation. Well, I think the kingdom is like the kingdom of God is like that. So later on, instead of talking about the absolutely untranslatable name or, or proper name or untranslatable poem, he started talking about justice, hospitality, the gift, the perfect gift. 
which would be given in such a way that you wouldn't incur a, a, get a debt of gratitude and I wouldn't be congratulating myself for being generous. Mm-hmm. So he says, well, the only gift that would meet that requirement would be the, the gift that nobody, in which nobody knew that anyone gave anybody anything. <laughs> <laughs> then you wouldn't yeah. set off the chain, you know. Right. Uh, so he, he he's thinking like that. Mm-hmm. And the kingdom of God is like that, I think. So, well, you're describing you're describing love, pure love, which is which is obviously something that insists more than exists. You would say. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's right. Um, and until it, it insists, because you're you never are adequate to the essence that your existence is trying to actualize. Right. You know, your 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 essence is an essential call that your existence never reaches. Derrida yeah. there, doesn't have any of that essence existence stuff. He's got it in purely messianic terms. Mm. Um, I, I wanted to maybe finish with, with this question. You once said, and I forget what book it's in, Jack, um, every time someone announces the death of God, something funny happens on the way to the funeral. <laughs> I, I take that to mean that as soon as one God dies, Another is usually, if not always, resurrected uh, to take her place. And it may not be a religious god per se, but it could be a, um, I don't know, a political god or, or some kind of meaning-making system. Um, do you still see it that way? Sure. As we were saying before, the, the death of God would always be a moment in a, in a deeper... Just a, just a moment. So, it, would so always, it would be a moment in the birth of God. It would, so, the, so there is such a thing as the death of the death of God. Yes. Yeah, I don't actually use the language of death of God uh, except to comment on it and to, you know, I consider it methodologically uh, important because because otherwise you, there would be no escape from idolatry. But right. it's not ultimately the it's not it's not the figure that draws my attention or that, or that sparks any uh, uh, enthusiasm in me. The figure of uh, uh, the birth of God or the God to come um, is, my, is, more, is a more compelling image to me. But it would it's, it's, it would always be a necessary one. I use that, that expression. I said a funny thing happened on the way to the funeral um, of the death of God. And that was when Nietzsche uh, ex- announced the death of God, it was the death of any kind of uh, absolute certitude, any kind of... Uh, absolute center, any kind of absolute foundation. And that had the effect of ushering in a postmodern view of um, science. Because the, once, you, once you actually study the history of science, you see the scientists are constantly going around scratching their head, wondering about what's going to happen next, wondering about whether what they've got is true or not. They're hesitant to use the word true. They're more likely to say, well, the weight of evidence today is in favor of this, but you know, tomorrow morning we may find something we just didn't see coming. Um, so what what Nietzsche was criticizing was 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 actually breaking down, um, without his uh, intending it, the scientific reductionistic criticism of religion. Nietzsche was saying, look, there are multiple perspectives, and we can't absolutize any of them. There's always just this. Uh, in, in, and the most important thing of all is the invention of new perspectives. And so Nietzsche's critique of religion on the grounds of perspectivalism actually became a defense of religion 
against scientific reductionism. Because, Isn't that ironic? <laughs> so that's what that was the context in which I said that when he announced the death of God, a funny thing happened on the way to the funeral. You know, he he actually opened the door to in thinking in terms of multiplicities, multi, multiple perspectives of which religion would be one. Mm-hmm. And so even, you know, the most thoughtful and, and uh, scientists, unlike the the new atheists, would say, well, look, you know, science is of uh, fundamental importance, but it's not the whole thing. We need to have a, a richer understanding of our own lives. It's not going to it's not going to answer personal questions and existential questions and questions about love and hatred and justice and injustice. It's very, very important to un- to speak intelligibly about what we know about the world scientifically, but it's not enough. It's um, the, the the human life is a is a is a multiplicity, a complexity, and it requires more than one way of being able to think about things, and that's a way to restore that. That's like the classical idea of wisdom, as opposed to the more uh, uh, narrow idea of of scientific knowledge. So Nietzsche was, in effect, opening the door to a, a, a wider wisdom. He called it himself a joyful wisdom. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, I think of um, this this uh, this this phrase of yours. Every time someone announces the death of God, uh, something funny happens on the way to the funeral, and and this idea of deconstruction being tied in um, as pointing to, I I think the fact that we human beings are meaning-making machines, if you will, or myth-making machines, or uh, or uh, meta-narrative-making machines. We can't help it. It's it's part of our makeup, and one that is an, one that we should embrace and celebrate. Um, I my concern is that in you know kind of this postmodern uh, secular I don't know if you want to call it a secular turn in the West is there's this kind of rejection of of this truth that we are meaning-making machines or myth-making machines, and this is something to be celebrated and explored and, and not uh, marginalized or demonized. Do you see it that way? Yeah, or you could, in Tillich's term, symbol-making. Symbol-making machines. Yeah. Um, when when uh, Boltmann spoke of demythologizing, I always thought, well, that word's not good enough because we need remythologizing. Right. We, yeah. we need new. We need new symbol, new symbols, new myths, new uh, dreams. Would Would you say Would you say that metaphysics in that case is inescapable? If you, yeah, I've sort of softened what I what I've been saying about metaphysics in the past uh, to say um, metaphysics seems to me to be a way that some very creative people like 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 Spinoza and Hegel. Uh, and Plato and Aristotle and the great metaphysical theorists, very creative ways of imagining human existence. So they are, in the same way that that Tillich said, well, what you really should think, you should really think about theological concepts, not as theological concepts, but as symbols. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the same thing about metaphysical concepts. They are, I think of them as symbols. They are imaginative uh, constructions that, say something to us about human existence, I just don't give them the status that they give themselves in the history of metaphysics, which is, you know, that you see it uh, most dramatically in Hegel, where this knowledge is absolute knowledge. I don't think that metaphysics gives us absolute knowledge. I think it gives us 
cre- creative symbolic expressions of the of the human condition. Well, and, and my my concern is that there's been a confusion of theology and metaphysics, where anytime anybody invokes metaphysics, it's immediately assumed, oh, they're talking about theology. You know, when I I don't think that's always the case. I think when people oh, often, materialistic metaphysics, precisely. That's 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 what I mean. In in my mind, you know, metaphysics is a very hard term to define, but it doesn't necessarily mean you know, gods and goddesses and deities and supernatural things. It's simply a deeper way of describing our experience of the world and a deeper way perhaps of describing, an ineffable way of describing our experience of, of this world and what it means to be human. And and uh, for, for me, that's what I mean by metaphysics. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that would be a sort of uh, spin. Okay. The, the word as, it in, as it's found in philosophy means the highest science of reality. Okay. And it, it means to be scientific knowledge. That's why you won't find it in, I mean, scientific, not in the sense of experiment, lab, laboratory experiments, but scientific in the sense of rigorous discipline knowledge. It, and it meant, to, it meant to be. Aristotle um, called it first philosophy, meaning it was, it was the science of the highest principles of reality. And Hegel said, you know, Hegel announced his system as the system. I've got it. Here it is. Here is the highest account of reality, the highest principles, the final story. That's why there's all this, you know, reaction against the word metaphysics. It, 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 in its classical meaning, it is the science of highest principles. And it means rigorously argued science, disciplined knowledge. And so Heidegger and, you know, uh, uh, postmodernism are all, all talking about overcoming that because that's uh, pretentious. That's uh, Hegel said it was absolute knowledge. Now, so for most of my career, I spent uh, tossing bombs, you know, throwing, throwing grenades, lobbing grenades at metaphysics. Um, but I've come to think actually um, if, if you reconceptualize metaphysics as a kind of uh, a, a, a imaginative expression right. about the nature of the, uh, our experience of the world, um, okay. Uh, or if you think of it as some kind of, if you think of it in radically descriptive terms. You know, you notice in Tillich, he never uses the word metaphysics. His source is German metaphysics. He never uses the word metaphysics. Wow. wow because he will not allow himself to be associated with something that pretends to be absolute knowledge. Yeah. Well, maybe, so maybe so in my generation, huh? I was just saying maybe in my generation or, you know, in, in my culture, the term has been reappropriated and modified. Um, well, once it gets outside of philosophy, it gets, if it gets in current use, it's a lot of times I've seen it used in association with occult, Yes, you'll see metaphysical and occult uh, in, a, in a, a, a book catalog. Right. You know, there'll be books on literature, history, and uh, metaphysics and the occult. That's a head scratch. That's a head scratcher, right? <laughs> I mean that too. But uh, so that's why Tillich will say ontology, not metaphysics. Okay. By ontology, he means uh, experiential. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, I, when I look at what's going on in physics today, and maybe maybe you'll share this view, um, you know, all this talk of a multiverse theory and string theory and all these fields that 
scientists really don't have any idea how to access, but they're pontificating about it and suggesting that this is the underlying essence of the universe. Is this not a kind of metaphysics? This speculation, thought Mm. has detached itself from experiment, right? Yeah, if it runs loose, um, uh, and it, or if it's, it takes itself too seriously, it would be metaphysics in the bad sense. Right. But in meta, insofar as what what I think is that contemporary physics is all the metaphysics we're ever going to get, because metaphysics. David once put it this way. He said. Uh, Metaphysical knowledge is trying to give us an account of what the world would be as if we were dead. <laughs> it's, it's, it's what being is. You forget about us and forget about everything subjective, not what we think, but what being is. Yes. That's what it's supposed to be. Science of absolute being. So he says, he says, well, that would be like if we're dead. You know, what would the world be like if we were dead? Now, I think that the only language is available to us to speak about the world that way is the language of mathematic of mathematical science. That's the one that has removed the, the element of human experience from from the picture. And the, the only account we have of being as it is, as if we were dead, I think is found in mathematical physics. And it's so I say it's all the metaphysics we're ever going to get. And the reason I put it that way is that even it's not going to become metaphysics because the more science learns about the world, as you point out, the more confused it gets about right. how complicated this is. And they start finding themselves thinking things that other scientists say, that's not science. It's just, you're just using mathematics to speculate the way the philosophers used to centuries ago. Yeah. Um, the, 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 there's an image in one of Catherine Keller's books where she cites Wheeler, a man named John Wheeler, physicist who says, think of physics as a, the, an island of knowledge in the sea of ignorance. And the longer the island of knowledge grows, the greater the island of the knowledge grows, the longer the shores of ignorance become. <laughs> that's, that's nice. Isn't that good? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to remember that. <laughs> that's why I say the um, that's all the metaphysics we're ever going to get, because we're never going to get yeah. the metaphysics. It's open-ended, yeah. The, the, the more science learns about the world, the more they realize they don't know. I mean, well, if in fact it's the case that if, if we ever, ever get good reasons to think this is not the only universe, then in principle, alternate universes are will we be forever unknown. Yeah. You know, so there, there's a principle, there's a negative theology there. You know, there's a negative physics, phys- yeah. physica negativa. Uh, in principle, we're never going to know that. So there's a mystery of... of, of I think physics properly understood has has a a more sharpened appreciation of mystery than um, it's ever had. That's Mm -hmm. why I think the new atheists are old-fashioned 19th century reductionist atheists. Contemporary physicists are awestruck by the mystery of what they're running into. And um, there's a long tradition of saying that mystery, why not call that God? You know, Deus sive natura, as Spinoza put it. The mystery of the universe itself, like the, the panentheus, like uh, right. Whitehead and the panentheus tradition. 
it's the, the mystery we call God. Well, that's ultimately the mystery, and the mystery of being. That's ultimately the mystery of the universe. Right. Maybe. Well, I'm really glad we ended with talking about metaphysics because I think ultimately deconstruction in the religious sense kind of leads you down to questions about you know metaphysics. <laughs> and so, uh, thank you so much for coming on the Central Cast, Jack. Uh, really appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much, and keep up the good work out at Central Church. It's a, uh, I enjoyed my visits out there, and you're doing uh, some good stuff. Mm-hmm.